Chapter Ten, Part One of Nana by Emile Zola, translated by Burton Rasco. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Ten, Part One. Then Nana became a woman of fashion, a marchioness of the streets frequented by the upper ten, living on the stupidity and the depravity of the male sex. It was a sudden and definitive start in a new career, a rapid rise in the celebrity of gallantry, in the full light of the follies of wealth and of the wasteful effrontries of beauty. She reigned at once among all that was most costly. Her photographs were in all the windows, her name was mentioned in the newspapers. When she passed along the boulevards in her carriage, the crowd turned to look at her and uttered her name with the emotion of a people saluting its sovereign whilst she, quite at her ease, reclined in her wavy costumes, and smiled gaily beneath the shower of little golden curls which half hid the blue circle round her eyes and the carmine on her lips. And the marvel was that this big girl, who was so awkward on the stage, so ludicrous the moment she tried to act the respectable woman, charmed everyone about town without an effort. Adorned with a déshabille as artful and exquisitely elegant as it was ostensibly unintentional, she combined the suppleness of the adder with the nervous distinction of a thoroughbred cat, like an aristocracy of vice, superb and rebellious, treading Paris underfoot in the manner of an all-powerful mistress. She set the fashion, and great ladies followed it. Nana's mansion was in the Avenue de Villiers, at the corner of the Rue Cardinet in that quarter of luxury which had sprung up in the midst of the empty expanse, formerly the plain of Monceau. Erected by a young painter, intoxicated by a first success, and who had been forced to sell it when the plaster was scarcely dry, it was built in the Renaissance style, with the air of a palace, a certain fantastical internal arrangement, and modern conveniences within a space rather restricted for such a display of originality. Count Mufa had purchased the place furnished, full of a host of knick-knacks, of beautiful eastern hangings, of old credences and big armchairs at the time of Louis the Thirteenth, and Nana had thus fallen into a stock of the choicest artistic furniture selected from the productions of centuries. But as the studio which occupied the center of the building could be of no use to her, she had pulled the different floors to pieces, leaving on the ground floor a conservatory, a drawing-room, and a dining-room, and arranging a parlor on the first floor close to her bedroom and dressing-room. She surprised the architect by the ideas she gave him, showing herself at once at home in all the refinements of luxury, like the Paris street-girl who has the instinct of elegance. In short, she did not spoil the mansion overmuch. She even added to the richness of its furniture, with the exception of a few traces of tender stupidity and gaudy splendor, typical of the former artificial flower-maker who had dreamily gazed into the shop-windows of the passages. A carpet was laid up the steps in the courtyard beneath the grand veranda, and from the vestibule there came an odor of violets, a warm atmosphere confined by heavy hangings. A yellow and rose-colored glass window of the paleness of flesh lighted the wide staircase, at the foot of which stood the figure of a negro in sculptured wood, holding a silver salver full of visiting cards. Four women in white marble with bare breasts supported some elegant lamps, whilst bronzes and Chinese vases filled with flowers, sofas covered with the products of ancient Persian looms, and easy chairs with old tapestries furnished the vestibule, adorned the landings, turning the one on the first floor into a kind of ante-room, in which men's coats and hats were always to be seen lying about. The carpets deadened all sound, and such a peacefulness hung about that one might have imagined oneself entering a chapel traversed by some pious tremor, and the silence of which hid a mystery behind the closed doors. 
Nana only opened the drawing-room, which was in the Louis the Sixteenth style, and rather overdone, on gala nights when she entertained persons from the Tuileries or distinguished foreigners. Usually she was only downstairs at meal-times, feeling moreover rather lost on the days when she lunched alone in the lofty dining-room, which was decorated with gobelin tapestry and a monumental credence, and enlivened with old china and marvellous specimens of ancient silverware. She would return upstairs as soon as the meal was over, for she lived, so to say, in the three rooms on the first floor, the bedroom, the dressing-room, and the parlour. She had twice changed the decorations of the bedroom. The first time she had hung it in mauve satin, the second in white lace on blue silk, but she was not satisfied, she thought it looked dull, and tried to think of some improvement but without success. Over the well-padded bedstead, which was as low as a sofa, there was twenty thousand francs worth of Venetian lace. The furniture was in blue and white lacquer inlaid with fillets of silver, whilst white bearskins were everywhere spread in such profusion that they covered the carpet. This was one of Nana's caprices, she having been unable to get rid of the habit of sitting down on the floor to take her stockings off. Next to the bedroom, the parlor offered an amusing medley and a most artistic one. Against the pale rose-colored silk hangings, a faded turkey rose, stitched with gold, stood out a multitude of objects of all countries and of all styles, Italian cabinets, Spanish and Portuguese coffers, Chinese pagodas, a Japanese screen of the most precious workmanship, then china and bronzes, embroidered silks and the finest tapestries, whilst easy chairs as big as beds and sofas as deep as alcoves gave to the whole the lazy drowsy appearance of a seraglio. The room preserved a tone of old gold, blended with green and red, without anything indicating too much the abode of a gay woman, excepting, perhaps, the voluptuousness of the seats. Two small porcelain figures, a woman in her chemise catching fleas, and another perfectly naked walking on her hands with her legs in the air, alone sufficed to sully the apartment with a stain of eccentric stupidity and by a door almost always open, one caught sight of the dressing-room, all in marble and mirrors with the white basin of its bath, its silver bowls and ewers, its furnishings of crystal and ivory. A closed curtain maintained a faint light and gave the room a sleepy look, as though oppressed with an odor of violets that exciting perfume of nanas with which the whole house and even the courtyard was penetrated. The great matter was to secure servants for the establishment. Nana still had Zoe, that girl who was so devoted to her fortune, and who, for months past, confident in her instinct, had been quietly awaiting this new start in life. Now Zoe triumphed, mistress of the household and feathering her own nest, yet looking after Madame's interests as honestly as possible. But a lady's maid was not sufficient. A butler, a coachman, a concierge, a cook were required, besides which it was necessary to furnish the stables. Then Labordette made himself very useful in undertaking any commissions that bothered the Count. He bargained for the horses, went to the coach-builders, and assisted the young woman, who was continually met with on his arm at the different dealers in her selections. Labordette even engaged the servants. Charles, a tall coachman who had been in the service of the Duc de Corbreuse, Julien, a little butler with curly hair and always smiling, and a married couple of whom the woman, Victorine, was cook, while the man, François, acted as concierge and footman. The latter, with powdered hair and knee-breeches and wearing Nana's livery, light blue and silver lace, received the visitors in the vestibule. Everything was done in princely style. By the second month, all was in working order. The expenses were at the rate of three hundred thousand francs a year. 
There were eight horses in the stables and five carriages in the coach-houses. There was one especially, a landau with silver ornaments, which for a time occupied all Paris. And Nana in the midst of this fortune gradually settled down. She had left the theatre after the second performance of the Little Duchess, leaving Bordeneuve to struggle as best he could against threatened bankruptcy, in spite of the Count's money. All the same, she bitterly felt her failure. It added to the lesson Fontan had given her, a dirty trick for which she held all the men responsible. She now considered herself proof against all fads and infatuations, but her thoughts of vengeance did not remain for long in her flighty brain. What did remain there, however, outside her moments of anger, was an ever-keen appetite for squandering money, a natural disdain for the man who paid, a perpetual caprice for devouring and destroying, a pride in the ruin of her lovers. Nana commenced by putting the Count on a satisfactory footing. She settled clearly the program of their relations. He gave twelve thousand francs a month, without counting presents, and only asked in return an absolute fidelity. She swore to be faithful, but she insisted on being treated with deference, on enjoying entire liberty as mistress of the household, and on having all her wishes respected. For instance, she would receive her friends every day. He himself should only come at stated hours. In short, he should trust her implicitly in everything. And when he hesitated, seized by a jealous anxiety, she became very dignified, threatening to return him everything or else swearing fidelity on the head of her little Louis. That ought to be sufficient. There could be no love where there was no esteem. At the end of the first month, Mufa respected her. But she desired and she obtained more. She soon influenced him in a good-natured sort of way. When he arrived in a moody state of mind, she enlivened him, then advised him, after confessing him. Little by little she busied herself with his family cares, his wife, his daughter, all matters connected with his heart and his money, and she did so in a very reasonable manner, full of justice and honesty. Once only did she let herself be carried away by passion. The day when he told her that he thought Dagonet was about to ask him for his daughter's hand, Ever since the Count had been openly protecting Nana, Degenet had thought it a clever move to break off all connection with her, to treat her as a hussy, and to swear to deliver his future father-in-law from the creature's clutches. So she abused her old friend Mimi in a fine way. He was a dissipated rascal who had squandered his fortune with the most abominable women. Now he had no decency about him. He did not exactly make them give him money— but he profited by what others gave them, merely going himself to the expense of an occasional bouquet or dinner, and as the Count seemed to excuse these weaknesses, she told him coarsely that she had been Dagonet's mistress and furnished him with some salacious details. Mufa became very pale and did not again speak of the young man. It would teach the latter to be ungrateful. The mansion, however, was scarcely furnished when Nana, one night that she had been most energetically swearing everlasting fidelity to Mifa, retained Count Xavier de Vendeuvre, who for a fortnight past had been paying court to her most assiduously by means of visits and flowers. She gave way not through any infatuation, but rather to prove to herself that she was at liberty to do as she pleased. The interested motive came afterwards when Vendeuvre on the morrow helped her to settle an account that she would rather not mention to the other one. She would be able to get out of him about eight or ten thousand francs a month, which would be very useful by way of pocket money. He was just then finishing up his fortune in a violent fit of fever. 
His horses and Lucy had cost him three farms, and Nana was about to devour his last chateau near Amiens in a single mouthful. He seemed in a hurry to sweep off everything, even to the remains of the old castle built by a vendeuvre in the reign of Philip Augustus, with a maddening appetite for ruins, and thinking it a fine thing to leave the last gold bezants of his coat of arms in the hands of that girl whom all Paris desired. He also accepted Nana's conditions entire liberty and love at fixed times, without even being so passionately simple as to exact oaths. Mifa suspected nothing. As for Vendeuvre, he knew perfectly all that was going on. But he never made the slightest allusion. He affected ignorance, with the cunning smile of a skeptical man about town who does not expect impossibilities, so long as he has his own particular time and that Paris knows it. Then Nana's establishment was indeed complete. Nothing was wanting, either in the stables, the kitchen, or the bedroom. Zoe, who had the general management, found means of escape out of the most difficult entanglements. There was a kind of machinery in everything, as at a theatre. All was regulated as in a government office, and it worked with such precision that for some months there was no hitch. Nothing got out of gear. Only Madame gave Zoe an immense deal of trouble through her imprudence, her fads, and her foolish bravados. So the maid ended by being less careful, seeing that she made a far larger profit when anything had gone wrong, whenever Madame had committed some new piece of stupidity that needed being set right. Then it rained presents, and she hooked Louis in the troubled waters. One morning, when Mifa was still in the bedroom, Zoe ushered a gentleman all in a tremble into the dressing-room where Nana was changing her undergarments. "'Why, Zizi,' said the young woman in amazement, it was indeed Georges. But seeing her in her chemise with her golden hair hanging over her naked shoulders, he seized hold of her, put his arms round her neck, and smothered her with kisses. She struggled, greatly frightened, saying in a suppressed voice, Leave off. Do. He's in there. It's stupid of you. And you, Zoe, are you mad? Take him away. Keep him downstairs. I'll try and come there. Zoe had to push him before her. Downstairs in the dining-room, when Nana was able to rejoin them, she scolded them both. Zoe bit her lips, and went off looking very vexed, saying that she thought to have gratified Madame in doing what she did. Georges looked at Nana with so much pleasure at seeing her again, that his beautiful eyes filled with tears. Now the evil days had gone by. His mother thought he had got over his infatuation, and had allowed him to leave Les Fondettes. But on reaching the Paris terminus, he had hastened in a cab to kiss his darling sweetheart as quickly as possible. He talked of living by her side for the future, the same as in the country when he used to wait with bare feet in the bedroom at La Mignotte, and as he told his story, he thrust out his fingers through a longing to touch her after that year of cruel separation. He seized hold of her hands, felt up the wide sleeves of her dressing-gown even as high as her shoulders. "'You still love your baby?' he asked in his childlike voice. "'Of course I do,' replied Nana, who abruptly disengaged herself. "'But you arrive here without a word of warning. You know, my little boy, I'm not free. You must be good.' Georges, who alighted from his cab, dazzled by a long desire on the point of being satisfied, had not bestowed a glance on the place he entered. But now he was conscious of a great change around him. He examined the rich dining-room with its lofty gilded ceiling, its gobelet tapestry and its sideboard shining with silver plate. "'Ah, yes,' said he sadly. And she gave him to understand that he must never call in the morning, 
the afternoon if he liked between four and six o'clock which was the time when she received company then as he gazed at her with a supplicating look of interrogation but without asking for anything she kissed him on the forehead in a very kind good-natured way be very good and i will do my best she murmured but the truth was she no longer felt as she did in regard to him she thought georges very nice she would have liked to have had him for a companion but nothing more however when he came every day at four o'clock he seemed so sad that she often again yielded permitted him to hide in her cupboards and continually to pick up the crumbs of her beauty in time he scarcely ever left the house where he was as much at home as the little dog bijou both of them among the mistress's skirts having a little of her even when she was with another and catching windfalls of sugar and caresses in the hours of weary solitude no doubt madame hugon heard of her boy's new fall into the power of that bad woman for she hurried to paris and sought the assistance of her other son lieutenant philippe who was then in garrison at vincennes georges who had been hiding from the elder brother was seized with despair fearing the employment of force and as he could keep nothing to himself in the nervous expansion of his tender-heartedness he soon talked to nana continually of his big brother a strong fellow who would dare anything you see he explained mamma will not come here herself but she can very well send my brother i'm sure she will send philippe to fetch me the first time he mentioned this nana was greatly offended she said sharply i should just like to see him do it in spite of his being a lieutenant francois will very quickly send him to the right about then the youngster constantly alluding to his brother she ended by thinking a little of philippe when a week had gone by she knew him from the hair of his head to the tips of his toes very tall very strong lively and rather rough and with all that some more minute details certain hairs on his arm a mole on his shoulder so that one day full of the image of this man whom she was to send off a little quicker than he came she exclaimed i say zizi it doesn't seem as if your brother was coming he must be a coward on the morrow as georges was alone with nana francois came and asked if madame would receive lieutenant philippe hugon the youngster turned quite pale and murmured i was expecting it mamma spoke to me this morning and he implored the young woman to send word that she was engaged but she had already risen and said greatly incensed why pray he'll think i'm afraid ah well we'll have a good laugh francois let the gentleman wait a quarter of an hour in the drawing-room and then bring him to me she did not sit down again but walked feverishly about going from the looking-glass over the mantelpiece to a venetian mirror hanging above a little italian casket and each time she gave a glance or essayed a smile whilst georges lying on a sofa without an atom of strength left in him trembled at the idea of the scene which was preparing as she walked about she kept uttering short phrases it will calm the fellow to keep him waiting a quarter of an hour and then if he thinks he's come to a nobody's the drawing-room will astonish him yes yes take a good look at everything my friend it's all genuine i'll teach you to respect the mistress it's the only thing men can understand respect is the quarter of an hour gone yet no scarcely ten minutes oh we've plenty of time she could not keep still when the quarter was up she sent georges away after making him swear not to listen at the doors for it would look very bad if the servants were to see him as he went into the bedroom, Zizi ventured to say in a choking voice, You know, it's my brother. 
Don't be afraid, said she with dignity. If he's polite, I'll be polite. François ushered in Philippe Hugon, who was attired in an overcoat. At first, Georges moved across the bedroom on the tips of his toes so as not to listen, as the young woman had told him. But hearing the voices, he stopped, hesitating, and so full of anguish that his legs yielded beneath him. He was fancying all manner of things. Catastrophes, slaps, something abominable that would sever him forever from Nana. So much so that he could not resist retracing his footsteps and putting his ear to the keyhole. He heard very indistinctly, as the thickness of the hangings deadened the sound. Yet he was able to catch a few words uttered by Philippe, harsh phrases in which occurred such expressions as child, family, honor. In his anxiety to hear what his darling would reply, his heart beat wildly, almost stunning him with its confused hum. No doubt she would retaliate with a stupid fool or a go to the deuce I'm in my own house. But nothing came from her, not even the sound of breathing. It seemed as though Nana was dead in there. Soon, too, his brother's voice became softer. He could no longer understand anything, when suddenly a strange noise completed his amazement. It was Nana sobbing. For an instant, contrary feelings struggled within him. He felt impelled to run away, to rush in at Philippe. But just at that moment, Zoe entered the bedroom and he withdrew from the door, ashamed at having been caught. She quietly put some linen away in a cupboard whilst he, dumb and immovable and a prey to uncertainty, pressed his forehead against a window pane. After a short silence, she asked, Is it your brother who's with Madame? Yes, replied he in a choking voice. And are you uneasy about it, Monsieur Georges? she inquired after another silence. Yes, he repeated with the same painful difficulty. Zoe did not hurry herself. She folded up some lace and then said slowly, You should not be. Madame will settle everything all right. And that was all. They did not speak again, but she did not leave the room. For another quarter of an hour she moved about without noticing the exasperation of the youth, who grew pale with constraint and doubt. He gave side glances in the direction of the drawing-room. What could they be doing all that while? Perhaps Nana was still crying. The ruffian must have slapped her. So when Zoe at length went off, he ran back to the door and again held his ear to the keyhole. And he was quite bewildered, his brain in a whirl, for he heard a sudden burst of gaiety, tender voices whispering, and the smothered laughter of a woman being tickled. But almost immediately Nana conducted Philippe to the staircase with an interchange of cordial and familiar expressions. When Georges at length ventured into the parlor, the young woman was standing in front of the mirror looking at herself. Well he asked, scarcely able to say a word. Well, what? said she without turning round. Then she negligently added, What were you saying? He's a very nice fellow, your brother. Then it's all settled. Of course it's settled. Really, what's the matter with you? Did you think we were going to fight? But still Georges did not understand. I thought I heard, he stammered out. Have you not been crying? Crying? I? she exclaimed, looking him straight in the face. You were dreaming. Whatever did you think I had to cry about? And the youngster got still more confused when she scolded him for having been disobedient and listened at the keyhole, spying upon her. As she continued cross with him, he resumed, very submissively and coaxingly, wishing to know. Then my brother? Your brother saw at once where he was. 
You see, I might have been some low common girl, and then he would have been right to interfere, on account of your age and the family honor. Oh, I understand those feelings. But a glance was sufficient for him. He behaved like a man of the world. So don't be uneasy, it's all over. He will ease your mother's mind. And she continued with a laugh. Besides, you'll see your brother here. I've invited him, and he'll come. Ah, he's coming again, said the youngster, turning pale. He said nothing more, and they no longer talked of Philippe. She was dressing to go out, and he watched her with his big, sad eyes. No doubt he was pleased that matter had been arranged, for he would have preferred death to not seeing Nana again. But in his heart there was a silent anguish, a deep pain, which he had never felt before, and which he did not dare to mention. He never knew how Philippe had quieted their mother's anxiety. Three days later she returned to La Fondette seeming quite satisfied. That same night at Nana's he started when François announced the lieutenant. The latter gaily chapped him, treated him as a boy whose escapade he had winked at, as it was of no consequence. Georges, feeling sick at heart, not daring to move, blushed like a girl at the least word. He had lived but little with Philippe, who was ten years older than he. He feared him as a father, from whom one hides one little's adventures with women, and he felt an uneasy shame on seeing him so free with Nana, laughing very loud, full of health and thoroughly enjoying himself. However, as his brother soon called every day, Georges began to get used to his presence. Nana was radiant with joy. It was a last change of residence in the full fling of a courtesan's life, a housewarming insolently given in a mansion overflowing with men and furniture. One afternoon, when the two Hugons were there, Count Mufa called outside his regular hours. But Zoe, having told him that Madame was with some friends, he went away again, without seeing her in the discreet style of a gallant gentleman. When he came back in the evening, Nana received him in the cold, angry way of an insulted woman. Sir, said she, I have given you no reason for insulting me. Understand that when I am at home you are to enter like everyone else. The Count stood with his mouth wide open. But, my dear, he attempted to explain. Because I had visitors, perhaps? Yes, there were some men here. And what, pray, do you think I do with them? It causes a woman to be talked about, affecting those airs of a discreet lover, and I do not wish to be talked about. He had great difficulty in obtaining forgiveness. At heart he was delighted. It was by similar scenes to this that she kept him obedient and convinced of her fidelity. For some time past she had made him submit to Georges's presence, a youngster who amused her, so she said. She got him to dine with Philippe, and the Count was very amiable. On leaving the table he took the young man on one side and asked him for news of his mother. From that time the Hugons, Vendeuvre, and Mufa openly belonged to the establishment where they met together as intimate friends. It was more convenient. Mufa alone still discreetly timed his visits so as not to call too often, and invariably affected the ceremonious air of a stranger. At night-time, when Nana seated on the floor on her bearskins, pulled off her stockings, he talked in a friendly way of the other gentlemen, of Philippe especially, who was loyalty itself. That's true. They're all very nice, said Nana, still seated on the ground and changing her chemise. Only, you know, they see who I am. Should they for a moment forget themselves, I would have them turned out of the house at once. Yet in the midst of her luxury, in the midst of that court, Nana was bored to death. She had men with her every minute of the night and money everywhere, even in the drawers of her dressing-table, amongst her combs and brushes. 
but that no longer satisfied her. She felt a void somewhere, a vacancy that made her yawn. Her life rolled on, unoccupied, bringing every day the same monotonous hours. The morrow did not exist for her. She lived like a bird, sure of eating, ready to sleep on the first branch she came across. This certainty of being fed left her stretched out the whole day, without an effort, asleep in the midst of that idleness and that convent-like submission, as though quite hemmed in in her profession of courtesan. Going out only in a carriage, she began to lose the use of her legs. She returned to the amusements of her childhood, kissing Bijou from morning to night, killing time with the silliest pleasures in her unique expectation of the man whom she put up with in a complacent and weary sort of way. And in the midst of this abandonment of herself, the only anxiety she had was for her beauty. She was continually examining, washing, and perfuming herself all over, with the pride of being able to appear naked before anyone and at any moment without feeling ashamed. Nana rose every morning at ten o'clock. Bijou, the Scotch terrier, woke her by licking her face, and then she would play with him for five minutes as he jumped about over her arms and legs and even on to the count. Bijou was the first of whom he was jealous. It was not proper that an animal should thrust his nose under the bedclothes in that way. Towards eleven o'clock, Francis came to do up her hair, preparatory to the complicated headdress of the evening. At lunch, as she detested eating alone, she generally had Madame Maloir, who arrived in the morning from no one knew where, with her extraordinary bonnets, and returned at night to the mystery of her life without anybody troubling themselves about it. But the worst time was the two or three hours between luncheon and the evening toilette. Ordinarily she proposed a game at Bézique to her old friend. Sometimes she read the Figaro, the theatrical and fashionable news in which interested her. She even occasionally opened a book, for she prided herself on her taste for literature. Her toilette occupied her until nearly five o'clock. Then only she seemed to awake from her long somnolence, going out in her carriage or receiving a host of men at home, often dining out, going to bed very late, and rising the next morning with the same fatigue, and beginning a fresh day to pass it in a similar manner. Her great diversion was to go to Batignolles to see her little Louis at her aunt's. For fifteen days together she would forget him entirely. Then she would be seized with a rage to see him, and hurry there on foot, full of the modesty and tenderness of a good mother, bringing all sorts of presents as though for an invalid. Snuff for the aunt, oranges and sweeties for the child. Or else she would call in her landau on her return from the bois, attired in such loud dresses that they would upset the whole street. Ever since her niece had become such a grand lady, Madame Lerat had been puffed up with vanity. She called but rarely at the Avenue de Villiers, pretending that it was not her place. But she triumphed in her own street, happy when the young woman arrived in dresses costing four or five thousand francs, and occupied all the morrow in showing her presence and quoting figures which amazed her neighbors. Generally, Nana reserved Sunday for her family. And on that day, if Mifa asked her to go anywhere, she refused, smiling like a young housewife. It was not possible. She was going to dine with her aunt. She was going to see her baby. With all that, poor little Louis was always ill. He was nearly three years old and was getting quite a big fellow. But he had had an attack of eczema on the back of his neck and now he had deposits in his ears, which made them fear a caries of the bones of the cranium. When she saw him looking so pale with his poor blood and his soft flesh spotted with yellow, she became very serious, and above all she was greatly surprised. What could be the matter with the love for him to sicken like that? She, his mother, was always so well. 
The days when her child did not engage her attention, Nana relapsed into the noisy monotony of her existence. Drives in the bois, first nights at theatres, dinners and suppers at the Maison Dorée or the Café Anglais. Then all the public resorts, all the sites where the crowds flocked, Mabille, reviews, races. But she still retained that empty feeling of stupid idleness which gave her pains in her inside. In spite of the constant infatuations in which her heart indulged, she would stretch her arms the moment she was alone with a gesture of immense fatigue. Solitude made her sad at once, for she found herself again with the empty feeling and the tedium of her own society. Very gay by profession and by nature, she would then become lugubrious and would constantly sum up her life in this cry, between two yawns, Oh, how men bore me! One afternoon, as she was returning home from a concert, Nana noticed a woman passing along the Rue Montmartre with boots trodden down at heel, dirty skirts, and a bonnet that had evidently been frequently soaked with rain. All of a sudden she recognized her. Stop, Charles, cried she to the coachman, and then called, Satin, Satin! The passers-by turned their heads. The whole street looked on. Satin drew near and dirtied herself still more against the wheels of the carriage. Jump in, my girl! said Nana coolly, not caring a straw for what the world would say. And thus she picked her up and took her off, disgustingly filthy as she was in the light blue landau, and by the side of her pearl-gray silk dress trimmed with chantilly lace, whilst everyone smiled at the highly dignified air of the coachman. From that time Nana had a passion which occupied her. Satin became her vice. Installed in the mansion of the Avenue de Villiers, cleaned and clothed, for three days she gave her experiences of Saint-Lazare. All the trouble she had had with the nuns and those dirty policemen who had put her on their list. Nana became very indignant, consoled her, and swore to get her out of the mess even though she had to see the Minister of Police herself. For the moment, however, there was no hurry. They would certainly not come and seek her there. And afternoons full of tenderness commenced between the two women. Caressing words were heard, and kisses broken with suppressed laughter. It was the little game, interrupted by the arrival of the policeman at the Rue de Laval, which had started again in the way of a joke. Then one night it became serious. Nana, who was so disgusted at laws, now began to understand. She was quite upset and greatly enraged. The more so as, on the morning of the fourth day, Satin disappeared. No one had seen her go out. She had bolted with her new dress, seized with a longing for the open air, with a nostalgia for her favorite pavements. That day there was such a storm in the house that all the servants hung down their heads without daring to say a word. Nana had almost beaten François for not having stood in front of the door. She tried, however, to restrain herself and referred to Satin as a dirty strumpet. It would teach her not to pick such filth out of the gutter another time. That afternoon Madame shut herself in and Zoe heard her sobbing. Then, in the evening, she suddenly ordered her carriage and drove to Laws. The idea had occurred to her that she might find Satin at the dining-place of the Rue des Martyrs. It was not to get her back again, but merely to slap her face. And it happened that Satin was dining at one of the little tables with Madame Robert. Seeing Nana, she laughed. The latter, struck to the heart, did not create a disturbance but on the contrary kept very quiet and amiable. She stood champagne and made a number of women tipsy, and then carried off satin while Madame Robert had left the room for a moment. But when she had got her in the carriage, she bit her and threatened to kill her if she ran away again.
and then the same thing kept continually occurring. Twenty times Nana, tragical in her fury of a deceived woman, hastened after the hussy, who flew off simply for a fad, bored with the comfort of the grand establishment. She talked of smacking Madame Robert's face. One day she even had the idea of a duel. There was one too many. Now, whenever she went to dine at Lars, she put on her diamonds and was sometimes accompanied by Louise Violaine, Maria Blonde, or Tatanine, all looking very gorgeous, and beneath the yellow gaslight in the smell of eatables which pervaded the three rooms, these ladies displayed their luxury in very questionable company, delighted at astonishing the girls of the neighborhood whom they carried off with them when the meal was over. On those days, Law, laced up and shining, kissed all her customers with a more maternal air than ever. Satin, however, in the midst of all this, preserved her calmness with her blue eyes and her pure, virgin-like face. Bitten, beaten, pulled about by the two women, she merely said that it was funny, and that they would have done far better to have come to some understanding with each other. It was no use slapping her. She could not cut herself in two in spite of her wish to please everyone. At last Nana carried the day, having bestowed on Satin the most love and presence. And, by way of revenge, Madame Robert wrote some most abominable anonymous letters to her rival's lovers. End of chapter 10, part 1